thank you for this opportunity this morning to um, bring you God's living uh, word uh, to you out of this earthen vessel that is standing before you. Um, I hope you have enjoyed this letter as much as I have. I love written letters. As you can see from the picture above, these are a picture of what I just grabbed this week that I have stashed everywhere um, between my books that I'm reading, um, my journals that I keep. Um, They are written letters that are just treasures to me from my husband, from my children, from my friends, from this body of Christ, um, from all over that save. And I have a problem saving letters, even to when my husband and I moved into our home um, and bought our first home, my mom called me and said, okay, um, will you come clean out the attic now with your little stash of stuff? And I went in the attic opened some shoe boxes, and there before me were letters and notes um, that I saved along the way. And they are treasures. Um, Every note represents feelings that the writer has taken time to sincerely convey in their words to share with me. They sacrifice time from something else to share with me something that was sincere enough on their heart with me. And especially those pinned with a sincere heart. And you can reread a note. We talked about this this morning. And that's what I love about letters is um, unlike a conversation and this memory that fails, you can't always remember every word spoken in a conversation, but a letter you can go back. And I can look back. I mean, this one is from my daughter, um, Mia, and raising a teenager, at times, it's hard to remember those words that they feel. And to have them documented here is such a treasure to your heart. And so whether the note is full of thanks, love, sympathy, I had notes from 30 years ago that my mom had saved from my dad's funeral that she gave me just recently. And oh, they were the most precious gift of words spoken about my dad. Um, But the notes of sympathy, uh, love, sympathy, concern, or even conflict. Sometimes we can receive a note of conflict, but isn't it much easier to receive when we know that it was penned in sincerity? Well, we have this too. Everyone knows that that's what we're studying is God's gift of his written word. He gave us this written word because he knows we are prone to forget. We're prone to wander. We're prone to doubt. And he gives us this love letter to us for those times of doubt to bring truth to light. When we are downcast, he brings comfort for our soul. And I believe that's why he included this part and this letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. And that is why I titled this talk with deepest sincerity, because the closure of a letter too is just as sweet as the words too. And I feel like if Paul could have scripted this letter with his quill and ink, it would have maybe been signed with deepest sincerity. Well, this is an example of a letter from a man who was once time at one time persecuting 
God's own people. And then he was radically called and transformed by Christ. And now he was walking, talking, and writing with the deepest sincerity. And now he was pleading the church of Corinth to channel the same sincerity, to awaken back up. He was pleading them to come alive, to see this truth and this passion that Christ has for them and that he had for them. What do you want your closing of your life letters to be signed with? What closure do you want? Well, Paul writes at the beginning of the letter, 2 Corinthians 1.12, he says, We have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you, with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. We're going to look at three markers in Paul's letter today. He made a sincere appeal. He seeks sincere sorrow. And he hopes for a sincere response. So first, let me define sincere. When I use this word today, I'm saying pure and without hypocrisy. And I don't have this up on the slide, but I also wanted to add, and to me it gives, I like to have a visual. And um, as I read, my daughter takes Latin, so she to help me with the pronunciation, but the Latin is sin Sere, and it means without wax. And there were different parts of this etymology of the word, but potters back then, when they would put their piece of pottery in the kiln, sometimes the porcelain would crack, and they may put wax over it to cover the imperfections, or if they were using marble, they could use wax. But one thing I like to picture is I love honey, And I also love the reference of words being like honey. God's words are sweeter than honey. And it said without wax. And I love putting honey on a biscuit. And I think what would be more unpleasant than to bite into that biscuit covered with honey and to chew wax? We don't want wax, right? So also when you think of sincere, you can think of the word without wax. So the first Mark that we see is in 2 Corinthians 1 through 7, chapter 7, 1 through 7, and it's the sincere appeal that Paul makes. And our sincere appeals are made and received as we rely on godly wisdom, not our own. Now, relational discord, we know, is a tool the enemy loves to use to take our eyes off of the Lord. But the flip side of this from the enemy is when we have relational discord and we seek peace and we persevere and attempt at peace, don't we give glory back to the Lord in that, um, that healing? Well, a sincere appeal comes from a person who has accepted the most sincere appeal from our Savior and who is also accepting appeals from him daily. We must know the say, know his voice. And to know, only in knowing his voice can we know the wisdom that comes from him, not relying on our own. Sometimes I think, you know, we even talked about this in our group, the, it seems kind of like the letter is choppy. But I want you to put yourself for a minute, try to put yourself in Paul's shoes. The passion and the love, the time, the sacrifice that he had poured into his people. 
and they are suffering. There's discord. And I think of the, the writing of the letter, and I almost could feel the restraint of the Holy Spirit on Paul, guiding him to what he needs to say. First, the defense of the messengers, then the defense of the ministry. And it's not coincidence, I don't think, that he just finished giving them the promises of God. He told them that God will dwell with you, he will be your father, and you will be his sons and daughters. So Paul was directing their hearts first to him before he makes the appeal. And I mentioned before he stated that he was not speaking of human wisdom, but by God's grace. And so I'm going to reference James 3, which gives us a really clear distinction between worldly wisdom and wisdom from above. And it's James 3, 13 through 18. But worldly wisdom has wax. I want you to think of that chunky wax. It's filled with bitter envy. And bitterness leaves a bad taste in our mouth, doesn't it? Envy is not wanting others good. It's wanting the good for yourself. And it's also filled with selfish ambition. And that can't be even blatant selfish ambition. It can just slide very slowly into the desires that we want. But the thing I want you to remember is worldly wisdom ends in evil. It says in James, and ends in disorder. And I think that is such a good picture to remember is when we bring our own wisdom in, it can only end in disorder. We know that Paul wanted their ultimate good, not just for them, but their spiritual well-being. He was definitely not confused with selfish ambition. James 3.18 says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first pure, peace-loving, considerate or gentle, some um, versions say, compliant, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, unwavering and sincere. And the bookends of that verse both begin and end with purity and sincerity. And that's why I chose this verse. And I'm going to reference what I saw the Lord showed me um, of, of Paul using evidence of Paul using godly wisdom. First, pure. Paul said, make room for us in your hearts. Paul wanted one thing, and that was the Corinthians' hearts. Not for himself, but for the Lord and for their spiritual well-being. And then he also says, I love, he says, I am very frank with you. That's what my translation said. I am very frank with you. There was no hidden agenda there. And he was peace-loving. He desired peace restored between them, but ultimately between him and their Savior. And he said he loved peace. I mean, it tells us that he rejoiced when he heard that they welcomed Titus back into their presence with reverence. He was gentle. He said, you are in our hearts to die together and live together. He was compliant. And I, I like this word compliant because it talks about flexibility, I think, is the word. When I said compliant, I was wrestling and my daughter, my youngest daughter said, Mom, being flexible. You always tell us to be flexible. And I think that's what Paul was. I mean, his intent was to go visit them face-to-face. He wanted to see them face-to-face, and he desired that. But I do feel he was listening to the Holy Spirit saying, you know what, maybe write a letter first. And Scripture supports both. In times of conflict, I think we need to yield to the Holy Spirit whether we go to one 
face-to-face or whether we go to one with words in a letter. So he was compliant, and he delayed his visit and wrote the letter instead. Paul was also full of mercy and good fruits. And we talked about that, and the Lord knew I could have never been Paul. But I think of all he poured into them, all he gave them, all the heart and time. And he wrote this letter, don't you hear it throughout the whole thing, is that I love you. I did all this for you. I'm doing this for you for your spiritual well-being, not for myself, but because I love you. Christ, okay, little side, curveball there. Okay, so, but that's not what Paul said, right? We know that Paul wrote the first thing that one of the things he writes is, I don't write this to condemn you. I mean, he says that I don't say this to condemn you. I'm coming with Christ's mercy. And what a contrast to the fickleness that the Corinthians were having at that time. He also, in the verse says, unwavering and sincere. His motives stayed right on target. He was defending his apostleship and ministry. And to some on the surface, when he's defending himself, it can look like Paul is speaking for himself. But he knew that their acceptance of him and their acceptance of his message were so intertwined for their spiritual well-being. He knew they needed relation with them to accept this message. And all of this was sown in peace. Are you responding to Christ's sincere appeal to you? Maybe there's a day when you once look back at your salvation and you say, yes, I, I, I answered to his sincere appeal to me. But are you listening and receiving his appeal to you daily? And will you make or receive an appeal with worldly wisdom or godly wisdom? I am so thankful. I don't know. I'm hoping and praying that you each have someone in your life who can make appeals to you. You know, over the years, appeals are not fun to receive. They're not easy to receive. But only when our eyes are on Christ can we receive them well. Whether the intend, the giver of that message is a believer or not, the only way I can receive them and I can only be responsible for myself is if my eyes are on the Lord and I'm receiving his appeal to me in sincerity as well. These appeals can lead to sorrow. These appeals can feel heavy, and they bring me to a fork in the road. And they can bring me either to a place where I brush them off, I can get angry, I can um, ignore them, or I can stop, take a moment, sit with the Lord, dig deep, and bring my sorrow to the cross and receive his grace. Well, this appeal, as we saw, did bring the Corinthians sorrow. It brought the giver sorrow, and it brought the receiver sorrow. But Paul was seeking a godly sorrow for them, and that is the second mark in this letter, in these chapters. A sincere sorrow, that's 2 Corinthians 7, 7 through 16. A sincere sorrow is led by God, not by our flesh, And it's resulting in repentance and salvation. Titus reported in in verse 7 at their reuniting of their longing for Paul, their deep sorrow, their ardent concern for him, 
And Paul said, so my joy was greater than ever. And we don't have that letter that Paul sent, but we do have the evidence of that letter. We know it caused deep emotions in Paul. We hear him say he had grief. He said there were conflicts on the outside. There was fear within. We hear him go back and forth. Almost there's like, I regretted. No, I don't regret. But you can feel the emotions probably that Paul felt in even sending this appeal to them. Well, how do we know the difference in our hearts between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow? Well, of course, as I think even Cole said this, anytime I teach, the Lord is going to make sure I believe what I am sharing. And so I'm going to share my story of struggle this week of sorrow. It was a week of um, defeat last week. And I remember when I was asked to teach this week, um, to teach this lesson, I went to my family and asked if that was okay. And my girls were quick to say yes, but they said, but can you take only two weeks to prepare this time? And I knew (laughs) at that point, I'm like, hmm, okay, so maybe my behaviors were changing as I was preparing, which my desire is not that, right? I don't want that. And so the more as I got closer and deeper into my preparation, I was more aware of my behaviors and my actions and my reactions to my girls and my husband were falling way short than sweet. So at this point, I was at the washing machine and I was folding clothes and I just, it brought me to a place of despair. I remember thinking, Lord, I'm trying, I'm learning your word, I'm trying to pour out and I've even been more on guard to be aware of my responses and I am failing. It was like a high-speed train. I remember sitting there, and it was self-examination, self-despair, more self-effort, and self-loathing. And I remember crying, just relieve me, Lord. Please relieve me. But do you see I was fixed on the self? I was fixed on my own, being my own savior. I love when Cole said that this Sunday. If you haven't listened to his sermon this past Sunday, I would encourage you to do so, but I was. I was being my own savior. If only I could do better. If only I could make this right. But I can't. But my flesh leaves me to a dead end. Our worldly sorrow will leave you to a dead end. It leaves you without hope. It leaves you with despair. And as believers, I believe we can walk a path of worldly sorrow, sometimes shortly, hopefully shorter than longer. But we circle on self. We keep ourself on our throne. And we look at sin as against ourself, not against our Savior. It's regret because it's a dead end and it's despair. And then we even have an example in the Bible of Judas who never submitted to that weight and led him to literal death. As Tim Keller said, and he described, literally I heard this the next day, and it was such a gift of relief, that I was taking my sin to Mount Sinai, not to Mount Calvary. And worldly sorrow may know of Jesus' death, but I stopped there. I forgot of his resurrection. I forgot of the empty tomb. 
In 2 Corinthians 4.10, it says, We carry around the death of Jesus so that we may carry around life. My flesh was keeping Christ's costly work and resurrection out of the picture. But God, God leads us to repentance and salvation. This year, God has given me a chapter to think of and to pray over, and it was Psalm 32. And I'm going to read it, but also interject on how uh, worldly sorrow interacts with us. Psalm 32, 3 through 5. When I kept silent, when I stayed between me, myself, and I, our bones become brittle. From my groaning all day long, my self-coaching, my self-motivating, my pumping myself up, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me as in the summer's heat. When Think of summer in Memphis when you're sweaty and you're hot and someone's hand is on you. Doesn't it feel oppressive? We think it feels oppressive. That's our first reaction. Then I acknowledge my sin to you. I admit my need for him. When I see that that hand is not there to oppress me, it's there to deliver me. I did not conceal my iniquity. I didn't try to hide with more good deeds or more judgment. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me of my guilt. Don't we know that at the moment our sin wound is revealed, Christ is there to apply the balm of grace and mercy simultaneously at the same time. It says, you surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. And verse 1 says, how joyful is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. I was uncovered, but at the same time, I am covered with Christ. Don't we hear that in Paul's words when he hears the reactions of the Corinthians? He said, my joy was greater than ever. He knew the joy of forgiveness. He has experienced that joy, that true joy, and he was experiencing it with them. Godly sorrow, which God allows, leads us to repentance and salvation. And I love the word salvation is deliverance from the power of sin. And we need to be reminded of that daily. When we start focusing on ourselves, our flesh wants to tell us we're not free of that. The Corinthians were led by God and followed by his leading to repentance. And the desires that came were of not regret. We saw they had a desire to clear themselves. They had indignation. They were hating the sin. There was a fear, a healthy fear. There was a reverence for God and for his messengers. And there was a deep longing and a zeal, a deeper love for Christ and others. And a justice, wanting those wrongs made right. It says, in every way they showed themselves pure. There was evidence of them being forgiven. And it wasn't what they were doing, but it was what they were allowing. They were giving false teachers their ear. Again, Paul's motive of their devotion to him was because he knew their devotion to him was intertwined with their spiritual well-being. It said, in order that your devotion to us might be made plain to you in the sight of God. Godly sorrow is not answered with condemnation, but with grace and mercy. And it results in our salvation and a deeper love for Christ, which results also in our deeper love of our brothers and sisters, too. And we have that example of Peter, but especially even in just Paul's life himself. Is a sin leading you to despair? 
Do you feel no relief, no end in sight, or are you hitting a dead end? Or you are allowing God's hand to bring you into deliverance, leading you to the cross. Will you take that sin and despair worldly, or will you give it to God to lead you to repentance? Now, we see Paul saw this this response. We see the the positive emotions that are being um, felt by the Corinthians. But Paul did not just want their desires. He wanted their actions to come too. And we know that the deepest, sincerest intentions do not substitute for our actions. We see that in Christ as well. That their sincerity sincerity and love and devotion after a heart that has received grace and mercy. Paul says, I rejoice that I have complete confidence in you. He has confidence in this renewed devotion because it came out of their sincere sorrow. And now he is hoping for the third mark, a sincere response. And a sincere response can only be completed out of a surrender to God, eagerly, generously, and with integrity. We said godly sorrow produces repentance. Well, repentance includes the weight of our sin, but also includes the desire to please our Heavenly Father that results in obedience. We know the background that from 1 Corinthians 16.1, and then also in this chapter, in chapter 8, Paul tells us that they started this giving themselves. They were the ones who desired to give to the church in Jerusalem. They had a fire back there, back then, that need to be, needed to be reignited. It had gone out. And we don't know exactly why they stopped giving. We don't know if they were giving. Some commentaries said they may have been giving to the false teachers, or they may have just been stopped. They may have stopped collecting altogether and just stopped putting money aside. We don't know, but that we know that the giving stopped. Paul lives and taught in word and deed, and he was wanting the Corinthians to follow also. He said, now as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. And again, as we said, it's, it wasn't about the Corinthians' money. It was about their... He said, I'm testing you for your, the genuineness of their love. And Jesus knew this as well. He said, for where your treasure is, your heart is also. This weekend at Colorful Day, um, what a sweet time it was of hearing the women from the church and gleaming from them. And I was sitting under Sarah Beach and Shannon Acosta's feet as they talked of finances. And little did I know that it was weaving into exactly what I was preparing as well. And uh, Sarah Beach said this beautifully. She said, Jesus knew by capturing their perspective on money, he would capture their hearts. And that's exactly what Paul knew. Paul knew that truth. Giving is an act of grace. We see that when Paul was writing to the church in Rome, he was saying this is a spiritual gift to give generously, without hindrances, without strings attached. And we have multiple examples in Scripture where giving and caring is definitely intertwined as an affirmation of our love and devotion of the Lord. 
in 1 John 3. I'm not going to go through that, but that's another great scripture. I would encourage you to read 1 John 3, 11, 16, 18. There's another affirmation about our giving and taking care of those in need as an affirmation of our love of God. Paul did not want the Corinthians to be insincere in their actions. So we see right after he says, I rejoice, I have confidence in you, he totally shifts and goes into the church in Macedonia. But it's all, Paul always has a purpose and a method in his writing. He tells us of this Macedonian church. He says, they had nothing, but they gave much. They overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They gave with abundant joy, even during a severe trial. They begged to give. There was earnestness. They knew it to be a privilege. They knew they were sharing in the ministry. And out of their giving of themselves to the Lord, they gave. This is a sincere response. We see the privilege it is that we have to give. And we give according to what we have, not what we don't have. We don't have to look and compare what this person is giving, what that person is giving. The Lord says, give with what you have, what I have given you, out of what I have given you. We trust God for the provisions. We see that he is the ultimate provider of all things. And we are just a channel of those provisions. That's it. We get to be a channel of those provisions. And it's one who acts in diligence. We give generously, not waiting for a return on our payments. And we reflect the perfect example, which was Paul's second example, which was the verse of Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. God did not spare his only son. Christ assumed all our debt all at once. And at that one time, it even says in Ephesians, the moment we hear and believe, we get the deposit of the Holy Spirit. And we get all immediately, not slowly. God doesn't say, okay, today I'm going to give you this spiritual gift. And Today, I'm going to give you this spiritual blessing, and tomorrow, I may give you this. We get it all, all at one time. God gives us generously without of nothing us giving in return. And words that also stuck out to me in chapter 8 were complete, finish, completion. You hear that over and over again, complete, finish, completion. And don't we picture Christ? Think about this. He He completed the work that his father gave him to do. Christ is completing in us and our faith. He is the perfecter and completer of our faith. He who began a good work in you will finish it. Well, Paul clarified further from these misunderstandings that the Corinthians may have had. Sincere responses are not, he said, are not. And I think of with wax. There's no wax in there. From what we don't have, it's not from what we don't have. It's not out of a command. It's not a fickle response. It's not out of pride. It's not out of fear. And it is with an earnestness. But finally, a sincere response acts with integrity. Paul finishes this work and he says, We are giving careful thought to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before the people. 
And we know in that he sent two other brothers just to be accountable in getting that donation to the church in Jerusalem. How are you responding to the grace of our Father? Is there a response that you need to bring to completion? Maybe it's giving. Maybe you were led to give and you were on fire to give, and for some reason it stopped. Are you responding sincerely with a worldly response, maybe out of a command or thinking of giving of what you don't have or worrying about what others are giving and not out of the goodness and what the Lord has given you yourself? I would challenge you to respond godly. Well, Paul knew a life lived with insincerity. We know he lived with hypocrisy and ulterior motives, but he was interrupted with the sincere love and the redemption of a Savior. And he channeled this love to the church in Corinth, and he wanted them to experience this same radical redemption of a life lived with sincerity. He wrote the sincere appeal, he desired a sincere sorrow, and now he was challenging them for a sincere response. Will you be channels of Christ's sincere love for you? And I will close on all of our life letters to be signed with deepest sincerity. And I will pray. Father, thank you that you always come to us sincerely, Lord, because that is who you are. You are pure, you are holy, you are good, and you love us sincerely, Lord. May we be channels of your sincerity to us. And I love that I can hear those words, Lord, that you say, I rejoice over you. I have confidence in you, Lord, because you are doing the work in us, not ourselves and not our flesh. Lord, this is our prayer, that we will conduct ourselves in the world and especially towards each other with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom, but by your grace. In your son's precious name, amen.